a Lifetime original podcast. Here's the thing. I don't even do dramas that aren't like light. I don't do anything that is tense. Amira, you work at A&E. Yeah, that's work. Let me tell you some real tea. I'm working on a serial killer show. I made this man cut all our shrubs because I'm scared. We have no bushes anymore because that show scared me. And I want to see out the door. Relatable. I understand that. I understand that. Hey, y'all. Welcome to The Table is Ours, the podcast where we celebrate all things Black. That's Black heritage, Black love, and Black pride. I'm here with my fabulous co-host, Kirby Dixon. Hey! (laughs) And if Kirby were an actor, she'd star in. Hmm. She never likes my answers, but... (laughs) If Kirby were an actor. Girl, make it a good one. Make it a good one. Make it a good one. She's going to hate this. <laughs> You're going to do okay. something ridiculous. If you were an actor, you would star in soap operas. Let me tell I know. I know. Soap operas? Because you know who always got a job? Soap opera actors. You know who's been on for 20, 30 years? Soap opera actors. They literally work consistently. They produce what they need to produce. They feel like home. You're right. When I think of soap operas, I think of like my grandma's house. Yeah, my mom still watches The Bold and the Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, because it's been on for 40 years. It's the only thing that will make it. It's the only thing that is done correctly that hasn't been like canceled. That's from the times. You know, I will accept the consistent work. I will Mm -hmm. accept the consistent check. I will also accept the fact that soap operas be making the most money and they're real low key with like you can live your own life. You can live your own life. Yes. That's the best of both worlds. You know what? That's the life that I want to live. Y'all know who that is. (laughs) (laughs) That is my incredible and comedic co host, Miss Amira Lawali. And if Amira were an actress mm-hmm. she would star in what is it oh i know what you would be you would be like i don't know what you call this but you would be like broad city that kind of like dry humor but you're living your life and funny things happen to you but that's just life and you know how to handle it and you have like these incredible zinging one-liners what is that rom that's not a rom-com what is that it's just a comedy yeah a comedy yeah I like this. You'd, you'd star in some, like, real-life comedy. But I also could see the both of us in, like, an Insecure. Oh, 100%. Because that's natural. That's not acting. So now I'm second-guessing all of my thoughts. Maybe we should throw it all away instead of podcasts. We should be actresses. <laughs> oh, I can't act. I can't. I can't act. And you know I can't act. I can't even do table reads here. Yeah, oh, I, can't. <laughs> I can't act either. I just laugh. So. I'm a terrible actor. <laughs> 
love Capricorn season. I feel my powers. I feel them. I can feel Okay, I feel no, Amira. Most... Your powers have been defrosting since the summertime, so I don't want to hear that you feel your powers. The powers have been there. The powers okay. are out, baby. Yes. They're strong. This energy is good. Capricorn energy yes. is like no other. In the week of like what? Like Blue Ivy, Miss Tina, Issa Rae, <laughs> Michelle Obama, and then me. Guys, you black gotta... women in Capricorn season? Yeah, you got we you bring got it, kind baby. of like the tri- like not even trifecta. Shonda you got Rhimes? like the Infinity Stone lineup of Capricorns. I love Shonda, Michelle, Issa, Blue. Oh, I can go on and on. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I can't wait. Yes. And the second reason why I love this week is because I would be remiss not to shout out my lovely, lovely sororers of Alpha Cap Alpha Sorority Incorporated. We're getting ready to celebrate Founders Day on January 15th, 1908. The first black sorority ever. So y'all could never. Okay. Yes. It's fine. I'm going to talk my shit for a second because y'all other sororities love y'all, respect y'all, but you're not the first. (laughs) And you'll never be the finest. Also, special shout out to Gamma Epsilon Philadelphia City Chapter of Alpha Cap Alpha Sorority Incorporated because they are definitely the best and the baddest in the game. That's it. I, I just love it for a second. I, I love you. Uh, y'all know I love when Kirby talks her shit. I, I, I think it's like peak Kirk. Like, I, I love it. But I hope you're in your sequin dress for your birthday, and I hope my sorors are in their. Uh, How did you know I green. have a sequin dress? You know? It's literally right here. It's on the floor of the package. That's like telepathy, I think. I did not know that, but it just sounded right. It fit. It's right. It's correct. You're correct. Yes. You safely paint the town sequined, and my girls Mm -hmm. will safely paint the town pink and green. I like this. I like this for us. I love this moment. (laughs) It's so funny, though. I feel like I've gone this entire podcast without talking about being an AKA. Really? Why? I don't know. It just never comes up. We don't really chat about it. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of stories. I just, I knew it was not for me. How did you know it was for you and why? Mm, well, my mom's an AK. And I oh, think. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't realize it until I was like older, but my mom and all of like the sisters around her that are like my aunts that I call my aunts mm-hmm. are like her line sisters. And it never oh. clicked to me because they never kind of talk about it. I knew if I were going to go Greek, it would be AK. I didn't know if I wanted to because it's not like something I craved. But then I got on campus. I like was going to events, meeting people, seeing all the stuff that they were doing. Like they literally ran. When I was going through college, like they were the it girls. Like you would see them hosting events and going to do community service and all this type of stuff. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. I also, being an only child, never really had a sisterhood or anything like that. So it was kind of like very attractive that way more than anything. Like I could do community service on my own. Like yeah. <laughs> my grades are fine, but it was like the sisterhood for me, honestly. And yeah. I did it and I literally can't imagine living without my line sisters. <laughs> so I'm glad it worked out. Yeah. Can I tell you a very dark story that I, it's not super dark. It's not that dark. Go for it. But it's not even bad, but this is the reason why I never thought it was for me. My freshman year, I guess there were guys that were pledging. Mm-hmm. And one of them was dared to ask me out on a public date and go to lunch with me publicly. Like, that was something he had to do while he was pledging. We had to go to lunch in the sub or something. Like, it was his job. Like, it was his thing that he was, his duty that he was given to, like, go grab lunch with me and stuff. And I said no at first. Mm -hmm. I was friends with a girl whose boyfriend was, I guess, was also pledging. And he was the one pushing. And was like, you have to go. And I was like, he's not my type. And I'm also talking to someone else, but I will go to lunch. So I went to lunch with him publicly. Nothing happened. Then I found out it was a joke, like, two weeks later. And I spent a month crying in my room. 
Yeah. And I was so, like, so hurt that honestly, like, I know that's not, like, every Friday sorority, but it was just the fact that that happened and, like, that's what you think is funny. Yeah. And, like, that's what you think making fun of and hurting other people is, like, it just put a sour taste in my mouth for all of it. So. Yeah. I can, uh. I honestly still get to, like, it was, it hurt me in such a way that it honestly that's... like ruined my Baylor experience. Yeah, for, like, that's disgusting. Year. I hated everyone. But no, I, I know that's like not the thing everyone does. It was just like that thing. Ru- I was like ruined everything. And I had no, like I had no, I wanted nothing to do with anything. That's that gross. I'm do. sorry that you so. experienced that. <laughs> I know. It was, it, and I, I always said this. I was like, you're lucky that you did it to me because I, I could handle it. But like, I know people who were mentally in a worse place than I was freshman year. That you could have like put them over the edge. You could have, that would have been it. Ew, but, ew. That's gross. I don't yeah. like that. It was bad. But I see all the great work. It was just, I was just like, I don't want anything to do with anything in this world ever in my life. And it was like first semester of freshman year. I hear you. It's terrible. And honestly, it makes me sad because like I see like such great sisterhoods growing up and like out of it, like everyone has such great friendship. But I was just like, no. I was like, but so I was embarrassed, but I was angry. But it was fine. (laughs) And honestly, like screw them. I'm so sorry. So that's honestly the real reason why I was never into fraternities or all of that. Well, you're four twenty or thirty, so where are they? I know. I never heard I their know. names. <laughs> <laughs> that was like genuinely my first huge bullying experience. Did you ever experience getting bullied? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. When? Absolutely. I think I will say now. I think that the reason why I tend to like gravitate towards the underdog or why mm-hmm. I tr- tend to treat everyone. I think with like respect and love and light first is because I was bullied when I was in, what was that? Probably middle school. And I think it was a different type of bullying. Cause it was like almost like my identity was being bullied. Like I used to be called an Oreo all of the time. I had like people saying that I was not black enough or um, I was like too nice and too goody, two shoes and like, just like too sweet. And it was like almost like, I think that hurt a lot because it was like, I'm just being myself. Like, you're literally bullying my character and there's nothing I can do about it. I remember being told I was an Oreo from another black girl. And that... Wait, it was another black girl? Hurt. Yes. Oh, that's sad. And it was on stuff like the way I spoke and the way I dressed. And I was just like, I I don't understand. Like, it took me a really long time to unpack it and to kind of just, like, get over that moment. But it, it did stick with me throughout high school. And I think it probably led to a little bit of an identity crisis going into college. But I got yeah. through it. I prevailed. <laughs> but I think kids kids really do know how to, to sting and how to hurt and how to dig. Kids are mean. Yeah. Kids are kids are mean to adults and kids are mean to other kids. Yeah. But oh, kids are so mean to adults. They don't have the context to understand how harmful they really are being. So, yeah, I was definitely bullied middle school going into high school, and it took me a little while to get over it. But you find your tribe. Yeah. Pull you together. And therapy. You you go through therapy to unpack some of that stuff, and hopefully you come out on the other side. So, yikes. I know. <laughs> That's actually a smooth transition into our guest this week. Mm. We spoke a lot about bullying and healing from traumas. Mm-hmm. And I guess that time in our life where people just weren't so nice and how we deal with it as adults. Yes, we sat down with the oh-so-talented Mr. Boris Kojo. We had a very engaging and very real conversation with Boris about his experience growing up in Germany 
and how blackness is viewed around the world. He talked candidly about the racism he and his siblings endured and the importance of knowing your worth and having a support system to rise above it all. We also had a very gentle moment with Boris where he reflects on his relationship with the late and legendary Sidney Poitier. Sidney was a trailblazing actor, director, activist, and philanthropist whose legacy will continue to span generations. Rest in power, Mr. Poitier. Boris Kojo is a German-born actor, producer, and former model, best known for his roles in Brown Sugar and the Showtime drama series Soul Food. He co-stars in BET's Real Husbands of Hollywood, and the Grey's Anatomy spinoff, Station 19. He was listed in People's 50 Most Beautiful People in the World. The most beautiful. Name, the most beautiful. <laughs> the finest <laughs> people Finest mine, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and is making his directorial debut right here in Lifetime with his new film, Safe Room, coming out this Saturday, January 15th, and starring his wife, Nicole Ari Parker. You won't want to miss this. Boris Kojo, let's get it! Hello! We are so excited to have you. Wow, thank you. I'm excited to be here. First interview of the new year, Amira. I know, I know, I know. I feel like I'm getting back in my seat. I'm clearing my voice. And what a way to start the year. This is a good one. (laughs) We also like to start the episode in the same way. And that is, what does joy look like for you? Oh, that's a great question. Wow. You know, joy immediately sort of reminds me of sharing it, right? So Mm -hmm. I think joy is connected directly to the people I'm closest to, the people I love and the people that love me. Because anytime I think about anything that's joyous or a great experience or a moment, it's always directly connected with my person or Mm -hmm. or my persons, you know, whether that's my wife or my wife and kids, you know, all the experiences, the adventures we've been on, that to me is the most high expression of joy, I would say. Especially within the past two, going on three years of this pandemic. I feel like family is a huge source of joy. Absolutely. And it's taught us so much about gratitude and celebrating those moments and doing better and being better for those who are close to you. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that. Like Amira said, we are so excited to chat with you. You have a career that spans so long and I feel like it just keeps getting better and better. But when Amira and I were learning more about your upbringing and your own personal story, that's really what we want to delve into today. Kind of dig deep into the experiences and the incredible lessons that you've learned throughout your entire life that have made you the person and the incredible man that you are. We know you grew up in Germany and you've been very open and honest with the experiences of racism that you encountered growing up between you and your brother. In thinking back on that time, was there ever a specific memory or experience that stuck with you when you felt your Blackness in particular was vilified? (laughs) I'm laughing because it was a daily struggle. Not a day went by without me being subjected to some kind of micro or macro aggression, whether it was severe bullying or, or violence or being called names or just being looked at weirdly or differently. And an example would be, you know, I used public transportation every day to go to school and I would sit in the, in the tram and uh, these two older ladies in their 60s were sitting across me and they were speaking like I'm speaking to you. They were talking about 
my teeth and my hair and my face fully assuming that I had no idea what they were saying. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, wow. I was right there in their face and they were just talking about me being three feet away from me as if, you know, I couldn't possibly understand, you know, those kind of unconscious bias I was subjected to every single day, mm. you know, on being called names on the soccer field being subjected to physical violence and, you know, being pushed around. And so it's something that my brother and I grew up with, with a white mother who did her best to empathize. Obviously she could not understand what it felt, but she could empathize from a standpoint of being, being our mother. Right. Right. And having that connection. And she, she tried, she tried her best to create a safe space at home and teach us about the value and the importance of representation, diversity, cultural heritage. You know, she made us very much aware of our heritage, whether it's it was on the German side or or the Ghanaian side, my dad being from Ghana. So we grew up in a difficult space while at the same time uh, being protected uh, as good as she could by our mother. Since it was just you and your brother, did that, I guess I hate calling it, but it's, it's a trauma bond. Did that bond you guys even closer? Because it was just the two of you? Uh, there was two of us and then there was three of us. Uh, my, you know, my older sister, she joined us as well. When she was 14, I was 10. She came to live with us. She had a different mother. And so it was the three of us. And yeah, we all, look, everybody goes through childhood trauma, unknowingly or knowingly. And the three of us all had to figure out our way in our immediate environment, as well as the difficult relationship we had with our father, or we didn't have with our father. So each of us had to figure that out for ourselves. And we all ended up having different relationships with our father, some more difficult than others. And it's it's like a constant sort of, it's part of your coding, you know, the coding of your hard drive, if you will. Yeah. And, and the first six years in a child's life are the most impressionable years in terms of establishing who that person's going to be, right? So it's uh, after six, seven years, our subconscious mind has has fully formed and can't be changed. That's it. That's our hard drive. That's what we're dealing oh, with. Oh, wow. Everything after that is conscious discovery of who you are, who you want to be, what you're dealing with and all that. But the but your hard drive is set. So if you experience childhood trauma in those first formidable years, it affects your entire life in a certain way, right? Mm-hmm. So part of our hard drive was every time we stepped out of the house. And the effects of that obviously left marks that as you grow older and become an adult, you didn't start to deal with, Right. It's similar and different to what most or all African-Americans are dealing with when they grow up, right? Because there is a generational trauma there for the past 400 years that, that has left an imprint on our emotional and our psychological development. Mm-hmm. Which brings me to when I first came to the States, one of the things that I was really surprised about, because I was very knowledgeable, obviously, about American history, about slavery, colonialism, all that we've mm-hmm. learned about that in school and I was always very interested in one of the things that I noticed was that there hadn't been a collective effort here to heal from that trauma mm, so yes. we're living here every single day 
and we're displaying all these symptoms, right? Those mental and emotional symptoms, these scars that have been passed down to us from our parents, grandparents, and ancestors here. Yeah. Yet we have never really acknowledged that and taken any steps whatsoever to create some kind of process of healing. Mm-hmm. We display symptoms, we judge, we are being judged because mm-hmm. of those symptoms, but yet we've never taken on any steps to solve that or to start solving that puzzle. You spoke about childhood trauma. At what age did you notice that was something that you had to face? And how did you start your healing process from that trauma? Recently. Wow. Because you live your first 20, 25, 30 years in complete oblivion Mm -hmm. because you're so busy trying to figure out the world and figure out where you want to be and what you want to do. And I think it doesn't become apparent until you start having meaningful relationships. Mm -hmm. And And when those sort of take on the same identity that you realize that you've brought patterns into that synergy, if you will, that are not working for you, whether they're destructive or or detrimental to being healthy or or whatever that might be. And after you've done it three, four, five times and they all start and end the same way, you got to start asking yourself, what do I contribute to this mess? Right. Right. It happens when you're in your 20s that you start experiencing those moments and go like, whoa, what's what does this mean? Right. And and if you're courageous, which I wasn't always, uh, then you start digging into your past and figuring out those pivotal moments that you try to ignore or, or get away from. And then to make a choice to go through that process of really unloading that mm-hmm. and figuring out what it meant back then how it shaped you as an adult and what you're still carrying with you from that experience. And, and, you know, my father left when I was five and he told me to take care of my mom and my, my younger brother. And it's something that I took seriously at five years old. Right. And that's a pretty heavy burden to carry, you know, and a big responsibility that I wasn't even aware of that I took seriously. And, you know, that has effects. And then my brother had a different experience because He grew up completely void of any relationship with my dad. He couldn't even remember ever living with him because he was so tiny. Wow. And then he, his focus was me. And that also brought on different sort of um, dynamics in his development, right? Some detrimental and some not. And then who do we blame? Who do we develop resentment towards? Why Mm -hmm. do we love ourselves? How do we see ourselves? Do we feel inferior? Do, there's so many things that play into those, the effects of childhood trauma that it takes, again, it takes courage and honesty to, to face it, to unpack it, to come to terms with it, to accept it, and then to actively try to replace some of those paradigms and patterns that have been established over so many years. And that's not something that you can do overnight. You know what I mean? So it's a journey. I feel like you are taking me in my first therapy session of 2022. <laughs> and <laughs> it's interesting hearing about you kind of unpack this because I think it wasn't until about five years ago that I began to see my parents as humans, right? Not these like kind of 
God figures or figures that know it all. And you realize that your parents are also dealing with and unpacking traumas from childhood or from relationships or have this also really complicated uh, life that they have to navigate as well. And I think we're at a point now, right, where Amir and I are both in therapy. We have the lingo and the language to be able to help us more quickly unpack things that we may have gone through earlier on that we didn't realize had an impact on us as we get older. So you being a father and having these experiences that you're now unpacking, and a few of them you're just now starting to unpack, I'm curious as to how you kind of navigate these conversations around race relations with your kids, having Black children growing up in this world based on the experiences that you and your brother and your sister had growing up. Courage, courage and honesty. I try to teach my children. I also teach my children that I haven't always been courageous and honest Mm -hmm. um, with myself and others. And uh, it's a human trait that just is part of our multifaceted self. Mm -hmm. And to not be ashamed, but to embrace every piece that you are. When you preface any dialogue with that, you open the floor for vulnerability and honesty. And I hope to do that with my children. Right. And these past two years have been a sign and a, and a testament to that, that we have these tough conversations, you know, every day about the pandemics, you mm-hmm. know, the viral pandemic, the social justice pandemic, the equality pandemic, and how, how my kids relate to that and the perspectives that they bring to the table, the fears, the concerns that they might have, the hopes mm-hmm. that they might associate with it. So. Yeah, we've we've been having these conversations every every day at the dinner table. It's one of the things that that is super important to me um, that we share meals together. Uh, you know, everybody has their different lives and schedules, but we come together and and we eat and we cook, and it's always the highlight of my day for sure. Love that. That's amazing. Kirby and I talk a lot about therapy and the work that we do on ourselves, and I think, like you said earlier, twenties I call it like the dirtiest time of my being. Because instead of like, I'm at a point in my career where I'm like, oh, I'm happy, but I'm having to reflect on friendships and relationships and how I got here. And I think for me, it was like realizing that I am the villain in some people's stories and I have to be Mm -hmm. okay with that as long as I was truthful to myself. And like, that was a big hurdle for me to get over because I always wanted to people please. And I'm wondering like, is there like one lesson that was really hard for you or difficult for you to get through on your journey? Oh, there's so many. I think that's what makes it, so special. Somebody said that there's no success without failure. That's just the beginning, right? I think that in order to be successful, and to me, the definition of success is not trophies or 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 awards or or money. Um, to me, success means being one with who you are, recognizing your purpose and cherishing relationships, because that's your true legacy. The true legacy is how people feel about you when you're gone, and especially your children. Um, so to me, my, my legacy is my children. But there were numerous moments, and there will be in the future, because without contraction, there can't be expansion, right? So you have to go through those moments of great pain and sadness and anger and rage and disappointment in order to expand, have the courage to expand, and then move to another plane. What's interesting is that as you get older, you all of a sudden remember moments in your childhood that were 
pivotal points that at the All time of the time you were yeah. completely you were completely ignorant about you had no idea how they would shape you in the future so i think the key is not to be afraid of raising your awareness because it might be terrorizing to think about that because humans love comfort and change is opposed to that comfort because mm -hmm. change pulls you out of your your comfort zone and it introduces you to new things and new ways of thinking and those ways of thinking sometimes directly threaten your sense of familiarity and comfort mm -hmm. it's a constant dance and a push and a pull of allowing yourself to step out of that and to uncurl yourself from the contraction and to be able to expand Stay tuned because when we come back, Boris talks about his Ghanaian roots and the festival that started the year of return. You don't want to miss it. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm like taking a pause for a second because I feel like this conversation is going exactly where we originally wanted to go. We've kind of discussed your time growing up in Germany, right, where your blackness in a way was vilified and you experienced all these different forms of racism. We talked about you coming to the U.S. and trying to navigate and understand a different form of blackness, <laughs> American form of blackness. And we do also want to touch on your going back to your roots and your first trip to Ghana, which is a totally different form of blackness as well. What made you want to go back and visit Ghana? And what was it like to actually be surrounded in comparison by people who looked like you? Well, I've always gone to Africa, even growing up, you know, uh, my father would take us. I, I know my family there, a grandmother and when she was still alive and all my cousins. And so it wasn't something that was unfamiliar to me and my it brother. It was a home going. It was going home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was mm -hmm. We grew up multicultural. There was always, you know, the exposure to to the continent and, and the way of life, culture, music, people, food, all of that. You talk about blackness and different forms of blackness, popular culture, whether it's music, fashion, entertainment has been largely defined through an African-American prison. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When we talk about black anything, it was defined by the Michael Jacksons, the Michael Jordans, of the world. And I think only recently have, especially African-Americans realized and acknowledged that blackness is not just defined by their experience, which is kind of ironic because that's what we judge white people for, right? We judge white people for seeing society and the world as this sort of one-dimensional thing and that anything else is strange or or mar or should be marginalized right mm -hmm. but then we turn around and we define blackness as 
something that has been defined by African Americans, right? Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, we have over 400 million people of color around the world, not not on the continent. And then on the continent, we have another 1.4 billion people. Mm -hmm. So 1.8 billion people. And it's largely been defined by a population of 40 million, which is black people here in this country. So we got to, you know, we got to check ourselves. Yeah. And we got to understand that blackness is much bigger than what we made it out to be and what we've mm -hmm. always sort of uh, complained it to be seen as. Meanwhile, we're really being instrumental in creating this false narrative. So we got to open up, mm -hmm. right? Got to we got to be expansive, and we got to we got to normalize blackness. Period. Yep. And that means global, and that means embracing everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, and the music and the culture. And now, I mean, Afrobeats is the most popular music in the world, it's right? It, baby. And it shouldn't be a surprise. It shouldn't. And I, yeah, I think what you said is the point. It's like blackness around the globe has always moved culture around the globe. And what I think is interesting is I'm I'm first gen. I'm Sierra Leonean, and I can see the shift of accepting kind of African culture, whether it's music and fashion within the last few years, because mm -hmm. in 2019, before the world changed, like the year of the return in Ghana was like the hippest, greatest thing to do for like in our industry and industries like around the country it was like the year of the return going back to Ghana. It was kind of this like synergy where everyone was coming together. So I'm seeing, I have a question for you is like, are you seeing that shift in the later years now that Afrobeat's like number one music and like we're all coming together globally? It's certainly um, a, a hope, aspiration, right? So when we first um, founded um, Full Circle Festival, it, it was to change a narrative, right? And your wife, Nicole, came up with the name, right? She came up with Full Circle Festival. She came up with it. And my brother, he and Bozoma, St. John, myself mm -hmm. and- Love her. Paul, yeah, yeah. We had a talk with the president, Nana Akufuado, and, and he was talking about the year of return. And, and we said, look, the goal is to change the narrative because Western media has portrayed the continent as this place of darkness and famine mm -hmm. and war and, and poverty. And, mm -hmm. and it's been done so by design, you know, yeah. because they, they've tried to keep us away from the continent so they could exploit it. Right. The Chinese, the Europeans, all the continental contracts where you're talking about infrastructure, manufacturing have been largely controlled by ex-colonial nations, okay. Europeans and Chinese. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to change that narrative and make it interesting, attractive and exciting for people to visit and to surround themselves with culture, with food, with people, with music and see that life on the continent, first of all, the continent is made up of 54 countries. Africa is not a country. Yes. That's where we start. Yep. Yes. Different kinds of cultures, mentalities, people that look totally different. Mm -hmm. And to sort of introduce people to the notion that Africa, it's funny. Whenever I went to Africa, I always got two questions. Number one, uh -oh. it's so great of you to give back. Implying that it was a, some sort of missionary charity. charity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Number two, wow, I wish I could go on a safari. Those are what? Those questions. I, yeah, that's the two questions I got. So that's the that's the common knowledge that people had of Africa, which was largely formed by Western media. So we changed that narrative and we did yep. it effectively um, to the tune of, uh, I remember uh, Ghana alone. Ghana had 40,000 
visa applications in 2018. And then we did Full Circle Festival and it went to over 1.4 million visa applications after that. Wow. So we, and I say we, not me, I say we, all of us have effectively changed the narrative. And now people are getting more and more interested and excited about visiting and about understanding that this continent is a huge, gigantic trade union now because mm -hmm. of the free trade commission that was established two years ago, that now African countries are free to trade with each other, where before they were confined to this weird, crazy way of doing business where they had to go through France or the UK or one of the ex-colonial forces to be able to trade. And now 54 countries are effectively one, the biggest trade union in the world, three to $4 trillion a year. So Africa is not just a place for tourism. It's a place to do business. It's, mm -hmm. It has great economic yeah. development possibilities and opportunities, great potential. It's the youngest population in the world. We got tech startups, we got uh, agriculture, we got manufacturing, mm -hmm. we got shipping routes, we got everything we need is there. Yeah. yeah. So the notion that we need other people is completely wrong. And we have to focus on two things, strengthening the bridge between a diaspora and the continent. And number two, investing in ourselves through collaboration, collaboration and synergies. And that's what we tried to jumpstart with the year of return. It's really a process of 10, 20 years that we're investing in. And that's one of my, my goals and my purpose is, is to continue to strengthen the bond between the, the diaspora and Africa and to educate people on normalizing global multifaceted blackness, not just through one prism. I honestly don't even know what to say besides the fact that I want to say thank you for literally bringing us through this incredible journey and really articulating the different sides of Blackness and going through this multicultural journey with us. We really appreciate it. I do want to talk about Safe Room. <laughs> so first and foremost, welcome to the Lifetime family. We are so excited to have you and your beautiful wife join the Lifetime team. And you have a new film called Safe Room in which this is also marking your directorial debut, which is huge. I always love seeing actors go from being in front of the screen to behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. I think it's the best thing that we can do for our industry. So first and foremost, can you tell us the cliff notes about what Safe Room is about, as well as what it was like directing for the first time? Uh, yes, yeah, Safe Room is a script that came across my desk that I related to on numerous levels. But, you know, being parents and having a child with special needs. And, and I always look for projects that promote representation. Mm -hmm. It's very important. It's also part of our duty, really, uh, and purpose to expand people's horizons and to support those who traditionally have been marginalized, especially in our industry, and to open the door and to shine a light and to help them to succeed and mm -hmm. to not just to succeed in front of the camera, but also behind the camera and in positions of influence and decision-making. And when we speak about autism, we speak about a huge community of millions and millions of people who are affected by this every single day. Yeah. So Safe Room is about a single mom with a 14-year-old boy who has autism. And he is a techie and loves to play with his gadgets and cameras. And he happens to film a murder across the street. And the murderers come for them to silence them. So it's a thriller that is about the relationship between the mother and her son. And how she goes from dealing and managing her everyday life to 
being in this life or death situation and getting to know her son all over again in this really extreme environment. And um, like I said, my wife plays the lead. I had a great quarterback in her. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was lucky. <laughs> I was lucky to get her and to lead the cast of amazing actors, Andrea De Matteo, mm-hmm. who we fell in love with on, on The Sopranos, and Mackenzie Aston, um, Monica Calhoun, who we love, and then Nick Sanchez, who was a fine, a tremendously talented young young man who was on the spectrum and, and who just came in and the audience like fell in love with him through through my wife's eyes. It was just a match made in heaven. And and I couldn't couldn't be prouder. We had many challenges uh, from an active shooter in the neighborhood. Oh my gosh! Wow! And the stolen camera truck, on and on and on. But somehow I, I feel this is a labor of love. It's like the, the little engine that could, and and we're not here. And I couldn't be prouder of this movie because it it uh, it took a lot to make this happen. But somehow I feel like there was like divine support you know mm-hmm. and yeah I, I'm, I'm super proud of it what was it like directing your wife it was great i mean you know she's she's the best she's incredible mm-hmm. so Morris, no nerves not one nerve <laughs> no not about wow. that she was one constant in this success of this movie i knew that if i got her to play this part i would be good because mm-hmm. you know her professionalism, her talent, her energy translated down to everybody on the set. So mm-hmm. number one on the call, she brings it every day, uh, like she did, you know, and positive energy and uplifting and empowering others. There's nothing to go wrong. So all I had to do really was just to set the stage and then unleash these actors and let them do what they do best and then just watch. That's a testament to your relationship and to your talent and her talent, obviously. How difficult is it for you to go from being in front of the camera to behind the camera? I was always looking forward to doing this. And one of the things that that I sort of pride myself in, I've always been this way. I don't know if it was my upbringing in Germany or being an athlete. uh, I'm always prepared. And that's one thing that doesn't depend on money. So I, I pride myself to always be prepared. I had a plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And I had the shot list and I, I had the vision and I prepared and I had a great partner in Dominique Telson, who's a producer and a, an amazing uh, partner in, in uh, Jay Feather, who was a DP, who gave this film the look and um, supported my vision uh, through all the ups and downs. So, yeah, I was never nervous. Mm-hmm. I was excited. I was always excited every single day when I stepped on the set, I was excited and I was focused. Mm-hmm. That's how I am. I'm always very focused on what I'm doing. So even when the challenges sort of presented itself themselves and there were mornings where we couldn't start for four or five hours and we lost a lot of time on some BS, right? That just mm-hmm. happened. Yeah. There's nothing I could have done. So I could fall back on my preparation and the fact that I knew what I needed to get done. And even though I had to shoot... <laughs> an unprecedented, uh, what, 32 scenes on the last day, which is usually usually scenes. I knew how to get it done. Mm -hmm. And I had the team to get it done. I had the support to get it done. I had uh, the greatest quarterback ever in my wife. And uh, so I could be the coach. Mm -hmm. I love that. If you stay ready, you ain't got to get ready. I know. (laughs) So 
what's next? What do we have to look forward to? A little more directing? Relentless. Jesus. <laughs> can we just enjoy this moment? You like, can. God. We're celebrating you in this moment. So what's next? I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> you know, the, the movie's going to premiere Saturday. Mm-hmm. Right. Can't wait for people to check it out. I'm shooting Station 19, season five right now. So that's always amazing and fun and great and blessed to be there. Real Husbands is coming back in February. So we we just shot, what is that, season? So the, the, we got the band back together yeah. with Kevin and, and Nelly and everybody. And so that was always fun. Uh, that's like you step on set, it's like autopilot. You know, we just mm-hmm. take, throw it out and you just go. <laughs> so that's fun for people to check out again. And yeah, there's a couple other things that I don't want to talk about yet because I like to just do it, which are very exciting. And I got two teenagers in my house. And we didn't even mention all of the other incredible organizations and philanthropic work and community work that you and your entire family are doing. So we're so proud of you. You continue to kind of just blow us away. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. I'm I'm a little sad today because of, you know, Sydney's passing. And um, one of the things that he stood for to me was his grace and his uh, integrity, but also his ferociousness mm-hmm. that he brought to the table in creating pathways for, for us okay. and for all of those who, who didn't have them. And um, one of the things that, um, <laughs> it's funny, one of the things that I could relate to was that he told me that he came to the States because he wanted to learn how to drop his accent. He had this Bahamian accent. Mm-hmm. That's why he started it, going to acting class. And and that's why I went to acting class because I wanted to learn how to how to speak better English, you know, without a German accent. Mm-hmm. And he also said to me that uh, not to take anything so seriously, mm-hmm. which I thought was poignant coming from him, somebody who carries himself with so much grace and gravitas and yeah. almost legal loyalty. Mm-hmm. He was hilarious. He was he was just really funny, and he reminded me just to not take all this stuff too serious, which sort of I could exhale, you know, I could take some pressure on my back and stress, you know, of my bones um, mm-hmm. by him saying that, which was kind of cool. So um, yeah, I, I remember him as being just a humble, funny, mm-hmm. just intelligent, talented, just giant. <laughs> he was just a giant, you know, amazing. I always think it's so incredible when you have people and figures in your life that you've never met and you've had the joy and the honor and the pleasure of meeting him, but we've never met him and someone can impact you in your journey so heavily and so specially. I always think that's a really incredible and amazing thing and what a life lived and what a legacy left. Yeah. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. What a joy. Oh, thank you. And we like to end the podcast the same each week with an iteration of this question. I'm thinking of just like the honor of Sydney Poitier. For you, we have my black is unbreakable because. My black is unbreakable because it is carried by the unbreakable spirit of my ancestry. Mm. Wow. Well said. This was such a joy and needed conversation. Uh, yeah. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you guys for making the time for me. I appreciate it. The 
The Table is Ours is produced by us, Kirby Dixon and Amira Lawali. This episode was also produced by McKamey Lynn and Aisha Jordan and edited by Melissa Kaplan. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. The Table is Ours was created by Lifetime. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.